Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. With your permission, Lord Jesus Christ, truly present here on the altar, we begin this time of meditation with an act of faith in your real presence. And as we look upon you now, as the lights dim and the light is focused on you so that we can pay attention to you and the candles are lit, we want to gaze upon you now with true faith and true passion. And we can think of a man who did that, St. Augustine, whom we celebrate tomorrow and today we celebrate his mother. Saint Monica, because Saint Augustine was truly a man of passion and faith, a man of the highest intelligence, tireless in his pastoral care for his flock, for his people, and well, ended up being a great saint and a doctor of the church, and well, a father of the church. He is, uh, he's really a prime witness to the early teaching of the church, to the teaching of the apostles. And it's really thanks to him that we have a really deep grasp uh, of, uh, of, the, of the faith and the, and the teaching of Christ. It's really quite amazing how he left such a deep mark on the cultural life of the West and really of the whole world when you think, think about it because he so deeply entered into the mystery of Christ. Having so deeply entered there, he, well, he, he left such a deep mark on the rest of the world. There's few people who have had more, a more deeper influence on, certainly on, on Western, Western culture. And uh, it, could be, it could be said that all roads of Latin Christian literature led to Hippo. And today it's a small town on on the coast of uh, Algeria, where he was bishop between 395 and 430. But the, the town today is called Anaba. Hippo today it used to be called Hippo, now it's called Anaba. But who's ever heard of that? Anaba, I've never heard of it. But, um, but nevertheless, he had such a powerful impact in the rest of the world. And, and uh, well, we, we thank you, Lord, that you spurred his mind and that he became such a great exponent of your revelation. He was, he was able to, to exalt its intrinsic wealth, the wealth of God's revelation through Jesus Christ and through the Gospels. You could say inventing ideas and forms that were to nourish future generations for literally, well, generations to come, centuries to come, and they, they continue influencing people. Of course, he left many written works, but probably what was most, you could say, is probably the book that has had the most influence, aside from the, the Gospels or the Bible, 
that has had the most influence is his spiritual autobiography, the, the Confessions, uh, written in praise of God, with an open heart. You could say it's, it's very modern in its style. And really, if there's one book that, you, that I really, really highly recommend that you read, if you haven't read it yet, it's his, it's his Confessions. It's, it's full, really full of interiority, psychology, and uh, it's, not, it's not a book that you give to a young, overly young person or somebody without you know, much preparation. Like it really helps to give it to somebody who has at least begun to pray, begun to think. And you know, Pope Benedict spent some years uh, dedicating audiences to different fathers of the church. He would give each father of the church one audience. And, but to Augustine, he dedicated five audiences, right? five audiences. And uh, among those, of course, he dedicated time to his confessions. And he said that he went from the mystery of the I, the mystery of the I, me, to the mystery of God, who is concealed in the I. And this is, he said, something quite extraordinary and without precedent and remains forever, as it were, a spiritual peak in the history of uh, spirituality. St. Augustine is a peak, right? It doesn't go, in some ways, it doesn't go higher than he does. And I really recommend you read it because there are really some very moving passages where he, he speaks about his life and today, I read it today in the Office of Readings, you know, the priest, we, have, we do the breviary, and the, of course, it's St. Monica, so the day before his feast is Feast of St. Monica, and it's all about the coming death of his mom. And how he sat at Ostia on the Tiber River with her, stand, sitting there on a, on, a, on, a, on a veranda. His brother was nearby, and they were kind of resting, and. And she is so happy that he has become a Christian. She's really thrilled. This is really all she wanted to see because his, his father had been a pagan and his father also converted and, and she had really prayed for this. And now it happened. Now it happened. Her son had become a Christian. What else was there for her to do on earth? And so this is how he explains it. This is in his confessions. He recounts the, uh, that period of kind of rest or vacation or something with his mom in Ostia, he says, what am I still doing here? This is what she said. What am I still doing here? What I replied, I cannot clearly remember because just about that time, five days later or not so much more, she took to her bed with fever. One day turning her illness one day during her illness, she lapsed into unconsciousness and for a short time was unaware of her surroundings. We all came running, but she quickly returned to her senses and gazing at me and my brother, as we stood there, she asked in puzzlement, where was I? She must have been in coma or something. And her brother, or her, her son rather, Augustine's brother, says he wants to keep her alive, he wants her to be good and so forth, a, a presumably a normal statement. 
And uh, Augustine says, we were bewildered with grief. But she looked keenly at us and said, you bury your mother here. And uh, of course, her brother, her, her son, her other son, or other other brother, the brother of Augustine didn't want that. But anyway, she died. She died. Shortly after, she developed a fever and died. And he was in great sorrow. He loved his mom. But somehow, he came to understand her purpose. He said, "I was silent, holding back tears, but my brother said something about his hope that she would not die far away from home." but in her own country, for that would be a happier way. She told him then that this was a silly talk. Just bury me wherever, she said. Just bury me wherever, which they did. She said, the important thing is that you remember me at the altar. It's a very, very modern account of somebody's death. And with time, he reflected more deeply within himself. And as Pope Benedict said, it's in himself, you could say, in his prayer that he sought God. And probably the most moving passage in, uh, in the book of the Confessions is Book 10, because it's made of books, right? It's several books. Book 10. And I believe it's chapter 26 of Book 10 is probably the most commented, the most read passage where he gives thanks for God's mercy. It's really, you could say, a very hopeful passage because you know, to those who are stuck in their sins, they can really take hope in his words. Not even hope, but energy to put those sins behind them to put, the, put bad habits, weaknesses behind them. And so he, in this chapter, he asks the reader, it's like he has a very dynamic dialogue with the reader. He says, how can you be sure that what I am saying is true? How can you be sure? Well, he says, I, I can't guarantee that you know that this will be true. He said, but if you love... If you really do things out of love, something true, something good, and something beautiful will happen. If you do things out of love. He said, in some senses, he said, if you do things out of true love, love of God and love of others, it's as though you'll be able to discern the truth. And he pursues this in that chapter when he analyzes memory. It's, it's been highly com commented. I mean, I don't, suppose, I don't pretend to be able to understand exactly what he says because it's a deep section where he tries to analyze memory. Like, what is memory? And he kind of asks himself that, you know, the, the Latin word is memoria. And he transmits certain platonic ideas concerning the life of the soul like for for Plato, he argued that when we learn something, right, it's more a process of remembering something that we actually already knew, but 
we forgot once we took on a human form. I don't know if Plato really means we had a life before, but so our soul knew that stuff before. And then we take on a human form, our soul is in a human form, right? And then we understand it. That's how he understands, you could say, memory. And Augustine takes some of that platonic idea. But basically he suggests that by knowing himself, by knowing ourselves, particularly in prayer, we can come to know God. We can come to know God. You can begin to perceive his call. You can know yourself. What does that mean? To know yourself. What is that? It doesn't mean thinking about yourself. It doesn't refer to any form of egotism. He's really thinking about the inner workings of the soul. The inner workings of the human soul because those actions are initiated and should return to the divine. Something divine, you could say, hidden within us. But basically he says that if we really know ourselves, we can begin to understand God. You can perceive his call. He says that our memory stores physical images, it stores smells, it stores sounds, it stores material things that we've experienced. The sense of smell is particularly closely related to uh, memory. Sometimes you smell something, you're walking through, you smell, and you remember something from your childhood, right? Abby Johnson, the this speaker who spoke at the RNC last night, she, she says that when she worked in Planned Parenthood, she said that abortion has a smell, has a specific smell, she said. Did you know that abortion has a smell? It was very, very powerful when she said that. Of course, I've never smelled that, but uh, she presumably knows that smell. And we, we store up these memories but there are also images that we store up that are not physical, that are more like abstract or like mathematical concepts. But he says the most important thing that we store up in that memory, in that hard drive of ours, is an impression of true, deep and abiding happiness. And that is a happiness that can only be found in God. We all have a, an inkling, a memory of that happiness. It's like we remember a divine reality or a substance, something that we share with God. As though we were sealed with the divine mark of authenticity. Because we were made by God. Made by God and for God. that memory of happiness began to stir in his soul as he began to reflect on this, this seal that were marked with, you could say, the accounts, all that accounts for the fact that all human beings, regardless of their personal differences, no matter who we are, we all want to be happy. We all want to be happy. 
inwardly, maybe dimly. Somehow we want to gain this perfect happiness that we can only grasp imperfectly because, well, because of the limited uh, physical existence that we have. But we, we still remember the beauty of that perfect happiness. It's, it's deep without, we want to be happy. We, we long to attain that happiness. Of course, the, the error of human beings, that what they commit is to substitute limited happiness and pleasure, often in the, just in the physical realm, for that ultimate happiness for, for God. So they think, well, if I'm, if I'm happy now, that's, that's what I want, like physical happiness or pleasure. Or... And indeed, it is hard to see the truth about ourselves. It is really hard to see the truth about ourselves, to know the truth, to know our dominant defects, to know our dominant, uh, our temperament, uh, the truth about yourself. We have a kind of inertia towards it. And indeed, St. Augustine himself says he remained sluggish and earthbound to discovering the truth about himself. He was foolishly confident in his own knowledge. That's why in that famous book, chapter 10, or book 10, chapter 26, he makes that famous opening statement that he was late in loving you, Lord. Late have I loved you, O beauty ever ancient. Late have I loved you. It's one of the most beautiful, moving passages, the most honest and true passages, translated many times. There's probably 50, 60 different translations from the Latin. I've read many, many different translations, and I'm never sure which is the best one. Probably there are thousands of translations. But I always read you know, the, the Latin. Cero te amavi, tam antico et tam nova. Cero te amavi. Cero te amavi means late have I loved you, O beauty ever ancient o beauty, or, or ever new. Late have I loved you. Some people say, translate it as a, um, I have delayed in loving you or something. I mean, they, they, they say it in different ways. But that first late line is usually pretty much the same. It's late have I loved you, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you. And behold, you were within me, and I was outside, and there outside I searched for you. See, so searched for God outside and the beautiful things that God had created. And, uh, well, perhaps. My favorite translation is the translation by Frank Sheed from 1948. Frank Sheed uh, was a convert and he went on to publish, uh, well, to found a publishing house with his wife and um, they published many books and, and he, he knew Latin, he, he translated Confessions. And this is how he translates that passage. Late have I loved you, O beauty so ancient, ever new, late have I loved thee. For behold, you were within me, and I outside, and I sought thee outside in my unloveliness 
I fell upon those lovely things that you had made. You were with me and I was not with you. I was kept from thee by those things, yet had they not been in thee, they would not have been at all. You didst call and cry to me and break open my deafness. Other translations, you called, you screamed, you broke through my deafness. You sent forth your beams, you shone upon me and chased away my blindness. You breathed, your, you breathed your fragrance upon me. Now I draw breath and do I pant for you. I tasted thee and now I hunger and thirst for you. You touched me and I burn for your peace. It's not actually the exact same translation of Frank Sheet, but anyway, I, I modernized it a little bit. This was the big turnaround in his life to pant for Jesus, to pant for God. And it came about thanks to this urgency of reflecting more deeply upon himself and seeing and understanding that God was there, waiting, shining, thirsting, waiting for him. He must have done this in his prayer. He must have discovered God like that in the silence of a chapel, maybe in the solitude of a room, maybe in the, in the woods somewhere, in Hippo, or maybe in Tagaste, just maybe walking in, in the woods. There, probably, I imagine him in the woods or walking through the mountains, he perceived the beauty of nature and surely he understood that he had been fleeing from the real origin of the beauty of that nature. It can be always very touching when we go outside in nature and we see the beauty there and we, see, we understand that this comes from God. O oh, beauty ever ancient, ever new, late have I loved you. Maybe you saw a beautiful sunset. Meaning God is both ancient and new. He is ancient in the sense that he's eternal, he's been there forever, but he's new in, in the sense that he's, he's, he's not old hat, he's, he's new, he has, he's eternal, he's always present and fresh and vibrant with me now. But he could only see inside himself God, like he could only find God when looking upon inside himself. There he could see the beauty and wonder of God, because there he had that quiet gaze, the focus of his own senses. And in that passage, he uses, in the larger context, let's say, of the, of the chapter, uses three famous Latin words, memoria, cogo, and cogito. So, especially cogo and cogito, so cogo, would mean to, it's a regular form, we would not sometimes think of it as the regular form of the word to think, but it's also 
the regular war form of the word to recollect. Like, it's kind of like memoria. We remember, we recollect, right? Uh, and then there's cogito, which is more of an active form of the same word of recollecting, but active recollection. So kogo is passive, it's receptive, it's kind of like a default mode of thinking. When you're told stuff, you, you take on stuff. Uh, right now, uh, the way you're listening to me, you're kogo, you're kogoing. In other words, you're recollecting, you're taking in what I'm saying, and then you will remember it. But if you're kogito, that's more active. It implies freedom, it implies taking, making, a, you could say, a life-saving shift. A co you're consuming something, you're producing something. You're analyzing. That's cogito. Like cogito ergo sum, right, from Descartes. You're making co connections, you're understanding. That's what he did. He, cogito. He, he said cogito. We are often left uh, with the impression that we ought to be afraid of God, that He's all wise, that He's all powerful, that He's well above us, that sanctity is a huge struggle and something difficult and that He's somehow distant. But as we see from Augustine, He says, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. That's how He come, came to discover God through beauty, the way, the pulcritudinis, you know, the, the way of, of beauty. And maybe we can ask you, Lord, uh, to help us see you through the way of beauty. That's why we try to keep our, our chapels clean and beautiful. We look at you, on you here now, and it's beautiful to observe you. Probably you know that on June 26, 1975, St. Maria was 72 years old and he had been outside and he had not been feeling too well and he went and took an elevator to go up to his, um, to his office and as he entered his room or his office, he wasn't feeling well, he, he suddenly felt faint and suddenly collapsed. He had a heart attack and collapsed. It was a massive heart attack that, that took him and of course, those nearby tried heart massage and CPR, uh, but of course, I don't know how long they did it for, but quite a long time, and it was basically too late. He was dead. And uh, one of the priests there, Father Joe Soria, who's now, of course, as we know, in Vancouver, he was his medical doctor. And as he looked at him there, he saw all the clinical signs of death were there, and that really there was nothing else to do. I mean, I don't think I, I've seen some people die, the breathing stops, there's no pulse, uh, the person simply can't be aroused again. Or, or, but one thing that happens in a person who dies is, is that their eyelids stay open, their eyes stay open because there's no longer any, <clears throat> they no longer have any, you could say, tension in their muscles. They're completely relaxed now and they keep their, their eyelids open. And when, Right now, you've got your eyelids open. Well, that takes a certain amount of muscular effort to do that. Well, you practically don't notice that, but, uh, but if you were dead, you'd, 
well, it's the opposite. It, to close it, it takes effort. But in any case, his eyes were open. And uh, for us, it's scary to see a dead person with their eyes open. I mean, like, it's pretty creepy to me, you know. But uh, so Father Joe closed his eyes. There's a way of doing that. He closed his eyes. And he was no longer at that point looking into this world. But he said he was looking into the beauty of eternity. Now he was looking, now that his soul had left his body, you could say his soul was looking into the beauty of eternity. True goodness and truth cannot be sequestered from one another. They all bring us to God and they need each other and they imply one another. And beauty is one of those ways. I would say that that was I, uh, is one of the ways, certainly, that attracted St. Augustine. It's in the classical world, it's part of physics, uh, because beauty is, a, is associated with attraction. Beauty has a, a gravitational pull. Right? Through beauty, we are, we are drawn to the true. We are drawn through beauty to the good. You could say, that's why we have art. Art is beautiful and it draws us to the true and the good, which is the divine source of life. It, it you could say, awakens within us desires. We desire what we find beautiful. And Augustine had experienced so much and read so much that it was true beauty that really attracted him. So let us, uh, let us ask for that uh, attraction to the beauty, to that gra gravitational pull, the radiance and the delightfulness of God. And like Augustine, we have to discover it within ourselves. And it shouldn't make us discouraged what we find within ourselves, because God is there. And maybe, maybe like Augustine, we can say, oh, beauty ever ancient, ever new. You were within me. And I was outside. And I looked for you outside in the beautiful things of this earth. But I looked outside. I didn't look inside. And you were waiting for me the whole time. So we must search. That's what we have to do. We have to search for you, Lord, all the time, all our life. And we will come to see that the, that the world itself is filled with divine meaning and purpose. For the rationalist, everything has... It's just a very stilted notion. It operates by biological, chemical, physical laws of causality. But we know that behind all this is the love of God. Let's ask St. Monica so that we pray for our friends that they come to God. And let us ask St. Augustine so that he make us too, that he pray for us so that we too be passionate and desirous for for that beauty and in that beauty we really find the call of God the stamp that he wants for us to see <laughs>